0: Amen. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Jeremiah, chapter 29. Jeremiah, chapter 29. The Lord has led me in light of the political situation in our country, in light of some things that I happen to have been reading, uh, to talk specifically tonight about the Christian's relationship to the world, specifically to the country in which he resides, to the land, the earthly realm in which he lives. How should we think about our nation, our country, our place of residence as both citizens of America and citizens of heaven? Have you ever thought about that, your dual citizenship? And the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to see that the church is something of a paradox in this regard. The people of God are both in the world, but they are not of the world. We are both for the world and we're also against the world. This observation is not new to me. In fact, I've been reading through Augustine in his City of God, and he was wrestling with the same truth. I've also been reading a Baptist pastor from England in the 1800s named Andrew Fuller, And on the occasion of his country being invaded by a foreign nation, he preached a sermon about Christian patriotism or how we should think about our country. We who are citizens of the city of God, as Augustine would say, but also living in the city of man or the fallen sinful world. And so tonight we'll begin to scratch the surface on this complex issue. And I'll be moving back and forth between the Testaments trying to tie together a lot of threads from biblical theology to give us a picture of our relationship to the world. And I'll try also to give us some guiding principles along with some practical wisdom without, Lord willing, wading too far into that realm into which angels dare not tread. That is politics. So read with me Jeremiah 29. We'll read the first seven verses, but our our main focus tonight will be verse 7. Hear the word of our Lord. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, and the Queen Mother, and the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah, and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shephan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, from Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat produce, take wives and Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you shall find your welfare. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach a text that historically is so far from us and feels situationally very different from us, help us to see your truth in it. Help us to see how we ought to live, who we are in light of your holiness, and how Christ connects this text to us. Lord, make us what we ought to be through your gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get to my first point tonight, let me begin by saying a few words about the context of this passage. For many of us, the later Old Testament history is a little fuzzy. We're familiar with the creation story, with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with the enslavement of the people of God in Egypt, with the exodus, with wandering in the wilderness, coming into the promised land, and then King, uh, in kingdom of David, kingdom of Solomon, and then the kingdom splits, and after that, it kind of gets a little murky. We know that some bad things happen, and then some stuff happens, and then Jesus comes. Well, there's, some, there's a lot of history that happens in between there. And so we find ourselves tonight in a period of judgment on God's people. In keeping with the promises and the curses that God had made with Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, God is lovingly chastising his child, his son, Israel, Right? They had been unfaithful. They had sinned. They were a mess. They were guilty not merely of tolerating, but of worshiping false gods. They had set up false idols all over the land, and the word of God was left in the dusty bins of distant memory. And so God raises up foreign leaders, like the king of Assyria first, and now in our text, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to come in and to discipline the people of God. The northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen, and now the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, has also fallen. This was around the year 587 BC, and it says in our text that the elders, the prophets, the priests, even the skilled laborers of Jerusalem had been chained up and marched back to Babylon. And this was the occasion for Jeremiah to write this letter. He's writing. To the people of God as exiles in a foreign land to encourage them and to tell them how they should act. They were surely wondering, how should what should we do now that we're here? How should we think about this? Their city had been sieged and burned down. It had been pillaged and ransacked. Their family, their friends were either killed or driven off in chains to a foreign land with a pagan ruler. That had to have been heartbreaking and Confusing. Surely they were tempted to doubt the wisdom of God, indeed his very goodness. What is he thinking? How could he let such a blasphemer kick us out of our own country and separate us from the temple where we should be worshiping him? And these questions are relevant for us as we'll see. We're called to be exiles, to be aliens, to be foreigners and strangers in this life, and we can be unsure of how to act while we are in exile. We can question God's providence. We can wonder why, under any administration in any earthly kingdom, why God has us here and what we should do in the meantime. What is our relationship? How should we think about ourselves and our loyalties and our actions while we are exiles? How do we Think about allegiance to our earthly kings. Do we serve them, or do we fight back and push against their regime, seeking to undermine pagan rulers? Jeremiah's letter is helpful here for us. He helps us to know how to act when we're in exile. And So tonight I have for us two observations and then three exhortations from this text. Two observations and then three exhortations. So let's begin. First observation, we must recognize our status. We must, just like the people of God in this, addressed in this letter, we must recognize our status. The people of God today, just like the people of God in this text, have been exiles, have been strangers, foreigners, we could translate it, ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for sin. Regardless of what geographical position we hold or where we find ourselves in this world, as long as this fallen world exists and we are in it. We will be strangers. We will be foreigners. We will be exiles. Abraham knew this in Genesis 17.8. God promises to give his offspring the land of your sojournings. And in Genesis 23.4, Abraham is trying to buy some land to bury his wife. And he says to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. He knew that that land was not his land. Homeland, And at the end of the book of Genesis, when Joseph is about to die, having fulfilled his role and saved his people, he he comes to his brothers and he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew that they were foreigners and they were in a strange land. Later, the people of God experience a great episode of exile in Egypt where they're enslaved for hundreds of years. But God saves them with his mighty arm. He brings them out to to the desert where they wander for 40 years. And after the wandering, they finally enter the promised land. They don't have to be exiles and strangers anymore. They have their own land, or so it would seem. But although they were in their land, we are still given glimpses in the Old Testament that this was not their final place. For example, when David is praying to God right, after, or right before anointing Solomon to be king in First Chronicles 29, David says,, quote, "We are strangers before you, God, and sojourners, as all of our fathers were." And this theme is not just in the Old Testament either. We look in the New Testament, in First Peter, for example, and the people of God are referred to as elect exiles and as sojourners, strangers, foreigners. Whatever nation in which Christians reside, that is not their homeland. We are in exile. Our citizenship is somewhere else. It's in a different place, a better place. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. That's the first step in discussing what our relationship with our earthly country should be. Where is our true and ultimate citizenship? And for the Christian... It's not here in America or in Canada or in Mexico or any earthly nation. Our passport is heavenly. Our status is celestial. It's heavenly. And the saints of God have recognized recognized this throughout church history. In Hebrews 11, after having discussed Abel, Enoch, Moses, Abraham, and Sarah, the author makes clear that all of these died, having not received the things promised to them, but having seen them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They knew that they were not home, that they were seeking a home, but that this earthly land was not it. No. And the author goes on. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Their hearts and their hope were not set on whatever land they were in. Their hearts were set on the heavenly city. They could live as exiles and strangers in Egypt or in Chaldea or in Canaan or in Babylon because they knew that that was just a short sojourn. No matter how bad things are here, no matter how lonely we feel, no matter how out of place it seemed, they could endure because God was preparing for them a place, a city, a heavenly city. And this is certainly true for us. We believers are strangers and exiles in this land, regardless of who is in the White House, regardless of who controls the Senate, regardless of who sits on the throne of any earthly nation. We are immigrants. We're strangers, sojourners. The same is true for when a pagan is in the office or when a blood-bought believer is in control. Christians have their ultimate citizenship, not in any earthly realm, but in heaven, We're sojourners and strangers, and that will dramatically inform how we live in this life. Which leads to my second observation. Not only must we recognize our status as exiles, but we must also recognize God's providence. We must recognize God's providence. The people of God in our text to whom Jeremiah was writing were assuredly tempted to feel hopeless. They were in a strange place with strange customs and strange food, without the ability to worship as they wanted, without the warmth of the familiar and the things that they held dear. Many of them were likely mistreated, even separated from their families, never to see them again. They were looking at the world around them, and they were wondering, what is going on? Who's in control? Because from my vantage point, it sure seems like Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. When you watch the news, you look at the world, you see the familiar things around you being torn down and burned, and the ideas that you think are important are being trampled upon, and the ideas that you think are foolish are being elevated and worshipped. When paganism is on the rise and true religion is being oppressed, are you tempted to wonder who is in control? What on earth is going on? Well, look what Jeremiah says in our text. Twice, he reminds the people of God who is in control. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. And look again at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Twice in these few verses, God reminds them that he is the one that sent them into exile. Nebuchadnezzar isn't in control, regardless if he's the most powerful man on earth. God is in control. God raises up kings and he topples rulers. He's merely using Nebuchadnezzar to do his bidding. And the same is true for the people of God in every age. God is in control. He's in control over God-fearing rulers and over persecuting pagans. He's in control over Constantine's and over Nero's, over Attila the Huns, over Napoleon's, over Pol Pot's and Castro's and Trump's and Biden's. He places each of them in their position of power for his own good purposes. God has not fallen asleep or taken his hand off the wheel. In fact, he's dutifully watching over his people to bring about his ends, and we can trust him in that. But why? Why would God do this? Why would God allow his people to go into exile into Babylon, and why does he lead his church through seasons of exile? Well, our text gives us some hints to some reasons why God might be working through this exile, or how God might be working through this exile. Let me give you a few reasons I think God would be leading his people into exile into Babylon. Well, first, and perhaps most clearly, I think God is punishing the nation of Israel. He's chastising them for violating the covenant that they made with God. I won't read it to you now, but you could read Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and see what curses Israel agreed to if they were unfaithful to the covenant of God, the Mosaic covenant. God is justly punishing the Israelites for breaking the covenant. Second, God is keeping his covenantal promises by sending his people into exile. For example... God promised in his covenant with Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring. And I think that's partially fulfilled through God's people being a blessing when they're seeking the good of Babylon during their exile. Further, God promised to send the seed of the woman, the true offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And he can't provide that Messiah if God's people are destroyed. And so by preserving a group, a remnant, he preserves a line through whom the promised Messiah could come. And Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon actually protected them from the encroaching Egyptians who were threatening to destroy Jerusalem entirely right before Nebuchadnezzar showed up. God is keeping his covenantal promises even though Israel failed to keep theirs. A third reason why God might be leading them into exile was actually to mercifully call his people back to him. God permits seasons of exile in this life that we might actually be drawn back to him. Look down at verse 12. God says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek, when you seek me, with all of your heart. You see, God works even through terrible pain and exile to bring his people's hearts back to him rather than letting them drift far from him. And in reality, distance from God is the greatest exile that any person can suffer. You see, ever since Adam sinned in the garden, mankind has been thrust from the presence of God. Our sin keeps us at a distance from God. It prevents us from being with God and it makes us exiles in this world. But God, in the riches of his mercy, has promised something greater. Just two chapters later in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah tells of a coming covenant, a new covenant that God will make with his people, the covenant that will take the law of God, the breaking of which resulted in the exile of Adam from the garden and of Israel from Jerusalem. And he takes that law and he promises to write it on our hearts. And to give us his very own spirit. And he will forgive our iniquities and he will remember our sins no more. That's the promise that's given. But it goes further than that. In Jeremiah 31, 38-40, he promises that Jerusalem shall be rebuilt and it will be bigger than before. And it shall never be plucked up or overthrown. And we know from history that he could not be talking about an earthly Jerusalem. Which has been overthrown multiple times by different kings. He's ultimately prophesying about another Jerusalem, a heavenly city. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, which is our homeland. It is our native land, our native city. The land that's been promised to us because of the work of Christ, whose blood is the binding pledge of this promised new covenant. You see, Jesus is the faithful son who upheld the covenant conditions in the place of sinners like me and you, who never could. He bore the curses of the covenant that you and I had earned and was the substitute that we needed. He is the faithful God working to bring us back to himself so that we might find in, be found in him, and we might be brought home from our sojournings and made to be at peace with him in our heavenly city forever. And that's the good news of the gospel. Regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of where we live or what ruler is in power, we have a God who has dealt with our greatest need, which is exile from him. And because he's done that, we do not need to fear what earthly kings can do. No earthly ruler can revoke our citizenship. No economic depression, no religious persecution, no pagan idolatry, none of it can undermine our celestial citizenship because it has been given to us by God. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus and your hope is in earthly rulers to bring to you the peace and the acceptance that you so desperately desire, then know that you will never be satisfied. No human leader can provide for you the desires that are swirling in your heart. God alone can give you the sense of peace and rest that you desperately crave. And he can do that regardless of where you live or what you've done. And so come to him and believe and have your soul made to be at peace, even in the midst of terrible exile. Because our souls will be restless until they rest in him. Next. Recognizing that we're sojourners in exiles and recognizing that God is in control through his good providence, we can look at some more specific and practical exhortations that God gives us through this letter of Jeremiah. And I'll close, or I'll spend the rest of the evening with looking at these three exhortations. First exhortation from verse 7 Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. The city into which I have sent you into exile, Jeremiah says. When a foreign king takes over and burns the things that you love and separates you from the things that are familiar and comforting and persecutes you, you will be tempted to fight back. You'll be tempted to plot his demise, to undermine his leadership, to generally not be a good Babylonian. Or if you're not tempted to actively buck the system... And to undermine the king, you'll be tempted in the opposite direction, to just withdraw, to hide together, to huddle up, to disengage. Let's just bide our time until we can get out of here. To do your own thing and to have as little involvement with the Babylonians as possible. Let's just ride out our time. But Jeremiah's words exclude either options. It says seek out. That's an active We're to actively pursue the peace of the city, the welfare of the city, not merely hope that it happens. We're to be intentional, energetic even, to engage in the pursuit of the city's welfare. Further, to seek the welfare or to seek, the word there is shalom, which is a Hebrew word that means it's a holistic sense of Well being, of goodwill, of satisfaction, of peace. All of these English words overlap in shalom. God's people are called to promote the peace of their society rather than engaging in unnecessarily divisive activity, promoting unity rather than unrest. We're called to honor the leadership that's over us, even pagan leadership. That's what this verse is about. It's about fulfilling the fifth commandment when we're in exile. How can I honor the leadership that is over me knowing that God has ordained that that leadership be there, Babylonian or otherwise? And so that prohibits me from using disrespectful language or engaging in demeaning activity. They're not to be mocking Nebuchadnezzar or making fun of the pagans in Babylon. They were called to honor those in positions of authority in whatever biblically permissible ways that they should. And by doing so, honor the Lord who had sovereignly placed those leaders there. Further, to seek the good of the city means to seek to be just in our dealings, to promote righteousness, to care for those in need, basically to be good neighbors, to be outstanding citizens. To promote, for us, this means to promote those policies and those office holders that rule according to righteousness and justice and promote the good of society in general. That will usually mean in our society voting for the candidates that rule according to righteousness. Now, side note here, here is where charity and Christian liberty ought to be observed among believers. While we live in Babylon, we may disagree on which Babylonian would be the best to elect. We can lovingly and charitably disagree on who is the ideal candidate, and yet still recognize that the Lord is God and love each other through the disagreement. Now back to our duty to seek the welfare of the city. If you've listened closely about the duties I've mentioned about being a good citizen in Babylon, nothing I've said so far is necessarily Christian. Pagans will affirm it's a good thing for everyone to seek to be a good neighbor. Pagans will agree that rulers should rule according to justice and righteousness. But what makes our heavenly citizenship different is that while we are exiles in Babylon, we're called to seek the shalom, the holistic good of the Babylonians, and we cannot do that without ministering to them spiritually as well. To seek the good of the city without giving them the message of eternal goodness is to fail to try and meet them where their deepest need is. Verse 6 tells the Jews to take wives for their children and to multiply While they're in exile, and while we certainly have the liberty to take a Christian spouse in this world, we don't have the liberty to ignore the Bible's clear commands to seek spiritual progeny in this life, to spread the gospel. We're called to spread the message of the gospel to any Babylonian that would hear it, to tell them of the good news that Jesus died for sinners, even Babylonian sinners, and that he will soon return to take us to our eternal city. And this message is the greatest good that we could ever seek for our city. You see, without, without seeking to address spiritual needs, it doesn't matter what temporal do- good that we've done. It doesn't matter who we've put in the office or how the stock market is doing or what the benefits are or what the educational system looks like if everyone's going to hell, if they haven't heard the message, the message of goodness. Speaking similarly on this topic in his book on the atonement, George Smeaton says it this way. To convert one sinner from his way is of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. And he's surely right. Yes, we can seek the temporal good of the people around us. But if we fail to engage them on the level of their deepest need, that is the spiritual status as exile from God's presence then we've utterly failed to seek their genuine shalom, their genuine welfare. And that's what makes a Christian exile different. We have the one message that can change the status of our captors from Babylonian to brother. And by doing so, we can change the nature of our exile into a joyous anticipation of our returning king. We're called to seek the good of the city while we're in exile. Second exhortation from verse 7, we're called to pray to the Lord for our city. We're called to pray to the Lord for the city, verse 7, but seek the, lo- the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And here's a significant command. This is the only place in the Old Testament that I could find where God specifically calls his people to pray for their enemies. But by the time we get to the New Testament, this becomes the ethic of a Christian. Sounds very much like Jesus in Matthew 5, where he commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute us. Praying for our enemies is one of the activities of a Christian that really sets him apart from the rest of the world. What other people pray for and genuinely seek the good of their enemies? None do, but we're called to. And by doing so, we confirm to the world both our status as exiles and strangers in this foreign land, and we confirm our faith in our message. You see, if God is really in control, if we are really citizens of a heavenly kingdom by grace and not by birth, not by merit of our own, then we recognize that even a Babylonian, even a pagan, even a devout atheist or a radical Muslim is just one act of God away from being a fellow citizen of ours in the heavenly city. God can work in their hearts, just as he is working in our hearts, to bring about a new citizenship. And we should pray for the good of our neighbors, that they would come to possess a heavenly citizenship as well. But we should not only pray for the spiritual health of our earthly city, we should pray for our leaders and for peace. Just like Paul commands in 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2, we should pray for these things that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, dignified in every way, First Timothy 2, 2. Pray for freedom from religious oppression so that the gospel may be proclaimed with purity and clarity. Pray for economic progress so that none may, must live in crippling poverty. Pray for the orphans and the widows and the immigrants, all of whom the Bible mentions as vulnerable, vulnerable groups open to exploitation. Pray for the good of our society, for unity, for justice in the courts, for healthy families, and for faithful parents who care well for their children, for crime to be suppressed, for virtue to be promoted, for the wicked to be punished. Seek the good of your city by seeking the face of your Father. But if we're honest, how often do we really do this? Do we really pray for those that persecute us, for our Babylonian city around us? I know I don't often enough But praise be to God that Christ didn't pray for his enemies in the same way that we do. He took enemies like me and like you and he spoke his word of truth into our hearts and he turned us from Babylonians of heart into spiritual children of Abraham, sons of God. And he continues to pray for us even now, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father as our heavenly advocate in our heavenly city. But even more than that, he came down and he endured the exile that we deserved. He went to the exile of the grave so that we might be liberated from captivity to sin. He surrendered to chains and to punishment so that we might be freed from condemnation. He went to the foreign land of the tomb so that we might be brought from the land of our sojournings and given citizenship in his celestial kingdom. He loved his enemies perfectly and he went into exile for them so that they might be saved from their willful exile and brought back home to the city of God, our heavenly city, our heavenly Jerusalem a city that can never be overthrown. Praise be to God for our faithful Savior. Finally, I'll close with one final exhortation. Not only are we called to seek the good of the city and to pray to the Lord on its behalf, but we should also recognize the rationale. Recognize the rationale in verse 7. The motivation given by Jeremiah is that in seeking the city's good, we're seeking our good. In seeking the city's good, we're seeking our good. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. The Bible gives us many different motives for obeying the Lord's command. For example, we're called to obey out of thankfulness of heart. We're called to obey out of love because he loved us first we're called to obey out of a proper fear of the lord we're called to obey in order to avoid discipline we're called to obey god out of love for neighbor and here jeremiah points out that seeking the good of the city is not merely good for the babylonians but it's also good for the people of god what good would it be for the exiles if they made themselves a stench to their captors what good would it be for us to make ourselves repulsive to the city It wouldn't be helpful at all. In their peace, we will have peace. Henry says it quite succinctly that every passenger is concerned with the safety of the ship. And that makes complete sense. Every citizen of the earthly realm ought to be concerned with the welfare of his city. And the same is true for Christians. It's not selfish to seek your good by seeking the good of your city. God has so ordered society that they be linked in this way. In seeking the peace, the shalom of our city, we're seeking our own peace. And so to wrap up, God has called us to be exiles, to be strangers, to be sojourners in this age as we wait for the return of our king. And we don't wait by withdrawing ourselves from society and being unconcerned with the earthly city. Rather, we seek the city's good, both spiritually and temporally. And we do this especially in prayer knowing that any Babylonian, any pagan we meet could soon be a brother or sister in Christ and a fellow citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Praise be to God that he sent his son to experience exile and to take the curses of disobedience from us so that we might not only be returned from the exile of sin but also adopted into a heavenly household and made made citizens of God's eternal celestial city. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the work that you have done on the cross to make us citizens of your earthly kingdom. Father, help us to wait for this kingdom's revealing with anticipation, to engage in the work of seeking the good of our city, to love our neighbors as ourselves by praying for them. Lord, help us to be diligent in this endeavor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.